All righty, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into a fun lesson this morning. Uh, the packet's on the back um, table, uh, but let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and just allowing us to be together as brothers and sisters today to worship you. And um, we pray for all of our Sunday school teachers and students that you would just uh, fill them with your spirit. Um, we pray for just this day of worship, that you would be lifted up and glorified. And um, we just thank you for the trustworthiness of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 3, and we're going to be asking the question, was the globe, or the was the flood global? Um our kind of opening set question, why do most cultures around the world have a legend of a global flood? I Let me tell you, I, I remember taking my freshman philosophy class at uh, Cypress College. And I had a philosophy professor who had us, he, he had his master's in philosophy, but we read his book. So it was his book that we read for the class. And he had this big old beard he looked like Socrates, and he had a German accent to boot. And um, <clears throat> I remember in the class, somebody, he, he was, every class we, he was bagging on the Bible in some way, and this particular day he was making fun of Noah and the ark and the flood. And somebody asked him in class, you know, why is it that there are so many flood stories all around the world? And to which he responded, it's just a sociological phenomenon that peop that cultures make up flood stories. And um, I didn't know how to respond at that point. I said, oh, okay. But it's just interesting that there's over 200 different flood stories in various cultures around the world. And that these flood stories, many of them have overlapping elements, like eight people in the in the in the boat many of them have <clears throat> um, birds that are sent out by uh, the patriarch in fact sometimes in many different cultures the name of the patriarch sounds very similar to the word Noah and um, so we have two different choices we can say that people just happen to sociologically make up flood stories that involve a boat, eight people, and two, a couple birds that are being sent out, and all kinds of animals come on the boat. Um, <clears throat> or there really is some historical connection uh, to uh, the flood story. Let me also uh, say a couple things before we jump into the text. Um, how could we know for sure with absolute certainty that number one the flood existed and number two that it was global how could we know that for sure because the bible says so okay but that's very simplistic brian it's very simplistic but really brian's answer is is the ultimate answer is we could know for certain if somebody was there who was an eyewitness who is a trustworthy eyewitness, and we could know that they're not going to tell us a lie, and they could report faithfully the facts. And the fact is, is that God was there. He's the only being that has the ability to communicate that past information to us faithfully and truthfully. And we believe that he has communicated that information to us in the Bible. One of the things I tell our apologetic students all the time <clears throat> is when they're developing their apologetics cards is don't ignore that the Bible is a historical document and it's an eyewitness document coming from God himself. A lot of times people want to jump immediately to extra biblical arguments and try to set the Bible aside when the Bible itself is history. The Bible is coming from the most reliable witness that we have. And, and while we can talk about probabilities when it, when, when we look at other sorts of evidence, the only way that we can come to absolute certainty is by looking at what God says in his word. One final little setup story. Back in the, I think this was 1992, somewhere in there, 
I went to a missions conference called Urbana. <coughs> Anybody ever heard of Urbana? Okay. Uh, missions conference. I had when I went there, I just totally bypassed me that we had four missions board directors right at Cornerstone that I could have gone to and gotten advice from, but I had to fly halfway across the United States to go do research on missions organizations and stuff. But one of the things I did when I talked to every missions organization and any seminary was there, I asked them two questions. I asked them, number one, do you believe in the doctrine of inerrancy? And number two, how do you interpret 1 Timothy 2? Meaning, do you believe that women can be pastors? And most of the organizations said, yes, we do believe in inerrancy. But I would say about 70% of the organizations that were represented at Urbana said either, yes, we, we are training women to be pastors or we're not there yet, but we're on the way. And as a young per I was young at the time, and they just assumed that I was like progressive in my thinking and theology. And so they all gave me the answer that they thought I wanted to hear. And that is that they were trying to train women for the pastorate. The reason, why did I ask that question? It's not because... Um, I'm a male chauvinist. It's because I believe that 1 Timothy 2 is a very straightforward passage. And while they could say they believe in inerrancy, if they could look at 1 Timothy 2, that is not hard to interpret at all and reinterpret it according to what the culture would prefer, that tells me what they really believe about inerrancy. They can say they believe in inerrancy all they want, but as soon as they start denying what 1 Timothy clearly teaches, now I know what they really believe about the truth and the authority of scripture. And I would say that today's issue is very similar. Is you're going to find, and I have friends who would say very strongly that they believe in the doctrine of inerrancy. And yet, when you ask them about these scripture passages and about whether there is, whether the flood is local or global or whether it even happened or not, they will equivocate on the flood. Even though, as we're going to see this morning, I don't think the text is very difficult to interpret. We also have the analogy of Scripture that the New Testament confirms what seems to be our, old, our interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, and yet people will equivocate on this issue. So for me, the reason that the issue of the worldwide flood um, is so important has more to do with the doctrine of Scripture than anything else. Um, if we were looking at the doctrine, if we were looking at the Old Testament and it wasn't really, it's, it's kind of up in the air, you know, like let's, let's pick uh, like the book of Job. The book of Job <clears throat> is an amazing book, but part of what makes that book difficult to interpret is its poetry. It's like this big old long epic poem. And so you have Job and you have his, um, comforters, so to speak, that are in, engaging in this dialogue. And then God enters in at the end as the ultimate hero. But it's, it's, it can be challenging to interpret in some ways. Uh, one of the questions that come is, is, is everything in the book of Job meant to be historical? And that's a difficult question to answer because Job is not written as historical narrative. It's written as a poem. And so I could see there being legitimate debate about the historical nature of what's going on in the book of Job. Maybe um, the Lord is inspiring the writer of Job to take a historical occurrence, but write poetry to demonstrate uh, themes related to the nature of, of God's sovereignty, his goodness, and, and, and being able to bear up underneath sufferings. I personally believe that the book of Job is historical, although I don't know that every single phrase within the poem was necessarily spoken by every person. Uh, it may have been part of the literature. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's, that's, that's something that can be debated, I think, and, and yet we cannot compromise our commitment to inerrancy and the authority of God's word. When you get over to Genesis, and this very clearly purports to be historical narrative, and we're, as we're going to see this morning, over and over and over again, it talks about the um, universal nature of it. And yet, we decide that we're not going to interpret it universally because of what some people would, how some people would interpret the science. That, that creates a problem. Let me ask you one final question. I, this um, 
I know I said I was going to end on the last question or last statement, but has it been um, scientifically proven? Can we prove with 100% certainty that the, the whole world was flooded uh, by Noah's flood? Can we prove that scientifically with absolute certainty? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally, yeah. So we do see fossils all over. And so that would definitely lend support to the flood idea, right? But does it prove what the Bible says, that God flooded the whole earth in 40 days, and then the water stayed on the earth for 371 days and so on? Does it give us absolute certainty just by what we see in science? Yeah, it's part of the evidence, but we would say no. We can't prove 100% certainty just from science that the whole earth was flooded. Uh, Can we prove with 100% certainty or a high probability that the whole earth was not flooded? No, we can't. There are secular scientists that would say they laugh at the Bible and they say we know that the earth was not flooded. And here's why. And based upon their presuppositions, they're halfway decent arguments to, to argue against a worldwide flood. But they cannot give us scientific fact on that. They can, based upon their starting point, they can make, they can postulate theories, um, but it, they cannot prove that the flood did not occur. So why is it that Christians are throwing the flood out with the bathwater, the baby out with the bathwater, um, when it cannot be proven or has not been proven scientifically. All right, so let me give you a, a quote. I, th- um, I think this is the first time we've mentioned this quote this year. Uh, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, 1847, was commissioned by the government to go out and study uh, several different Native American um, cultures. And he says this, there's one particular in which the tribes identify themselves with the general traditions of mankind. It is in relation to the general deluge by which races of men were destroyed. The event itself is variously related by the uh, Algonquin and the Iroquois and the Cherokee and the Muscogee and the Chickasaw, but all coincide in the statement that there was a general cataclysm and that a few persons were saved. So he, didn't, he wasn't commissioned by the United States to go out and do flood research. All he was commissioned to do was to go out and research all the various Native American tribes, research their culture, listen to their stories, so on and so forth. And one of the first things that he reports is that there's this unified story from tribe to tribe about a worldwide deluge, or not necessarily worldwide, but a deluge that covers a massive amount of area and that just a few people survived. Um, And so that's just very interesting that that, uh, would coincide. Um, let's take a look at a couple other things here. We're gonna, I'm going to skip past our little review section and just jump right into our text here. Okay. Let's open up to Genesis 6, 7. And we're going to hit, <clears throat> we're going to do a lot of rapid fire reading. Last week we got, we hit the, all three chapters in one fell swoop. I hope you guys enjoyed that dramatic NIB reading. I, I like that kind of stuff. Did you guys like the uh, skit on Noah, the interview with Noah? Did you guys get the link that I emailed out? Okay. If you guys aren't getting any emails, make sure you put your... Uh, oh, I, I need to update our attendance. Uh, just turn over one of those sheets back there and and put your email up there so I can make sure I can email you. Okay, so Genesis 6-7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. I am sorry that I have made them. So from the face of the earth, verse 11 to 13. 
The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So you're seeing this word earth that at times can be translated land, and other times it seems to be more speaking of the whole world. Um, I want to suggest in this context, because of words like all and every and filled um, that we're talking, it seems like we're talking about the whole world. Verse 17, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Okay, so there's two different ways to interpret a passage like that. Everything on the entire globe will die, or everything in this particular land area will die. That's the two different ways that people are going on this passage. Let's look at 7.4. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So all living things that I have made seems to me everything that God made in context with the previous passages that has the breath of life is going to be destroyed by the Lord. Do you think I'm stretching that passage? Anybody feel like we're stretching it to say everything that God made is going to be destroyed? I don't think so. Um, Verse 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, 17th day of the month, on that day, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. <clears throat> this is a long time to have rain. So, and then we have the, the fountains of the deep that are broken up from underneath. Um, you guys probably remember some of the really crazy floods that we had down in New Orleans. Um, this was not 40 days and 40 nights. Um, So you can only imagine what type of destruction. Verse 17 to 24. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark was moved about on the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. How many of the high hills? all of them under the whole heaven. So this seems to be that underneath the entire sky, um, every hill is covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. So 15 cubits, we'll talk about that later. A cubits approximately 18 to 20 inches in ancient standards. And so the idea is, is that every hill is covered by at least um, 15 cubits, at least 22 feet. All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, um, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man, cattle, creeping thing, bird of the air. They were destroyed. Um, from the earth, only Noah and those who lived with him in the ark remained, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's look at eight, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark <clears throat> over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. Okay, so several different passages. Let's, um, let's spend some time just rehearsing <clears throat> what we see in these passages. What word, words were repeated in these verses? What types of things do you see being said over and over again? All. Every, everything. Whole, right? Words like that. Um, what common idea was repeated, uh, a common idea was repeated in the verses that we read? 
Yeah, basically that everything gets destroyed, right? Everything that's not on the ark is destroyed. That, that, that seems to be repeated over and over and over again. We would, if, if we didn't understand, if we don't know anything about Hebrew literature, you would almost think that the Lord was saying, some people are going to doubt the extent of what I'm about ready to do. And so I'm going to say it over and over and over and over again so that they get it. It's kind of like that one praise song. It goes on and on and on and on it goes. And on and on and on. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that song. <clears throat> it's one of my inside jokes. Um, so the, um, so it's, but Hebrew literature is like that. Hebrew literature will say something and then it cycles around and then it says it again. And it kind of cycles around and it says it again. That's just the way Hebrew literature is. If you read through the book of 1 John, John is writing very much in a Hebrew mindset. And you can get kind of frustrated. Those of us that are from a Western, kind of like Greek, kind of like we want everything like Roman numeral one, point A, little one, Roman numeral two. And John just doesn't write like that. He's just like, you're all my little children. And all of you guys are all my children. I'm praying for you. And, and you're all my little children. And all my children, I'm so glad that you guys walk in faith and love. He just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. But that's, it's just kind of cycle around and it's repetition so that people, people can remember the big idea. <clears throat> and that's what's going on here uh, in this particular text is there's this constant sense of repetition. Um, are there any figures of speech in the text? Yes, there are. Um, we say all the high heels under the whole heavens. Heavens is is somewhat of a figure of speech referring to just the sky. All of the heavens is like just the sky. The face of the earth, the earth doesn't literally have a face, but it's it's such a common idiom, even in English, that we just think of the surface, right? But you were talking about the surface of the earth, the windows of heaven opened up. That's a figure of speech. Um and the fountains of the great deep, um, these are figures of speech. Now, does figures of speech automatically mean you're in a poetic section? No. You can open up the newspaper every single day, and you're going to see figures of speech, right? Um, you know, I saw a really good article the other day that said, is it John Kasich that was, is one of the, is that his name, John Kasich? Uh, this article said that John Kasich, uh, even though all of the March Madness brackets have all been filled in, he still thinks he has a chance to win his March Madness bracket. That's <clears throat> just a joke site. But um, yeah, so but figures of speech don't automatically mean, mean poetry. What was the source of the water of the flood, according to verse 11 of chapter 7? Yeah, so it's both. So we have waters that are coming from below and we have waters that are coming from above. So we've got this tremendous amount of rain and we have subterranean water that is just just bursting forth. And um, so that's that's what the text is, is telling us. Uh, what is the main point of this overall passage that we've surveyed? What's the main point? Yep, God destroyed the earth, everything on the land with a flood. It's a fairly simple, straightforward point. So that's just the observation of the text. Um, okay, so let's let's make some deductions from what we've read. Um, what phrases from the text seem to make an irrefutable point about the global extent of the flood? Say it again. The water, the water prevailed. Okay. All right. Well, verse 20, we have... Could somebody read verse 20 for us real loud? I know... Okay, good. So we've got the water covering the mountains 15 cubits upward. And then we have the repetition of every and all, those types of things. So again, so this is at least 20 feet above the highest mountain at the time. Uh, so um, 
what we don't want you to think is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, it's not as if um, the pre-flood world looked exactly like our world. So you have the Himalayas over there, and you got Mount Everest up at around 28,000 feet, and the floods covered up above 28,000 feet. Um, most creation scientists would argue that the pre-flood world, relative to our world, um, was a fairly flat surface. In fact, when God creates, it says it talks about how that he created the whole world first, and there was waters, and then he causes the dry land to emerge from the water. And many creation scientists would argue that the original creation, you have one huge landmass that's all connected. Um, and that you have hills and mountains, um, but that the great mountains that we see today are actually uh, caused by the flood, not something that were pre-flood. And so, um, again, th that's theory. But what we do know, on, according to the eyewitness, and the eyewitness here is whom? God. <clears throat> God, and obviously Noah, uh, says that every single mountain was covered by at least... Uh, 15 cubits of water regardless of how big those hills would have been I want you to imagine a valley surrounded by high hills with the ark sitting in the middle and the waters begin to rise and so does the ark and finally the water reaches the top of the hills okay so you got the picture you got a valley and then the water's rising in the valley and then the water gets to the top of the valley and what happens if the water gets to the top of the hills of that valley, what's going to happen to the water? It's going to overflow into the valley on the other side, right? And so will those mountains be covered? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, every night my son Samuel goes and takes a bath and we turn the water on and I turn it down I, I've got it about 30 percent and then I walk away and I go do something and then he cranks it up sometimes to 75 it's really flowing and I always tell him hey I don't want you wasting too much water keep it less than half but if I'm not paying attention before you know it that thing's up and he loves it he gets, puts his goggles on and he's just in there swimming like a dolphin and um, and so if he is not paying attention this has happened once or twice that thing gets up it's going to start to overflow the tub, right? And then he knows he's in trouble. But what I've never seen happen is that the water suddenly just starts shooting up the left side and there's an invisible wall and the water just keeps going up. And so to where it's like 15 inches above the rim of the, the tub. I've never seen that happen for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Wow. It's a, yeah. And so, but this, that's what some would have us believe in the local flood theory. The Bible is very clear that every hill was covered uh, by 15 cubits. And yet that is impossible in the local flood theory. It is only possible um, if we're talking about a global flood. <clears throat> um, and so I can't remember if I have, so based on the text alone, and it's, uh, entire context, is there any doubt that the author intended to communicate a flood that covered the entire earth just based on the text? I would say no. The text referred to the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. What do these figures of speech refer to? Fountain of the deep and the... We've already talked about it. Yeah, so below and above. Um, let's see here. Is causing a flood to cover the entire earth beyond the ability of God? No. <clears throat> yeah, it's not. It's not beyond his ability at all. Um, does 2 Peter 2.5 support or deny our conclusion? Let's turn there and see. So it could be theoretically as Christians, maybe, maybe our interpretation of this Old Testament text is marred. And so one of the rules that have been established for us, really um, from the beginning of the church age, but the, ref the reformers resurrected this concept called the analogy of the faith. Raise your hand if you've heard of the analogy of the faith. Okay, good. 
More of, so the analogy of the faith is basically the idea that you compare Scripture with Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. It's one of those principles that's based on the idea that the Bible is authoritative. And so the first place you go to try to understand what the Bible means, if you can't understand it in that immediate context, is you go to other places in the Bible. Because God can, is the one who can interpret his word. You don't immediately jump to outside the Bible. You stick with the Bible. It's called the analogy of the faith. What's it called? Okay, and this is based on the idea of the authority of the, of the scriptures, that the scripture is above all things because God is truth. God has inspired his word. The Bible is so authoritative, it's no more authoritative than Jesus, if Jesus Christ were standing right here today teaching this class. That's how authoritative the Bible is. And so because the Bible is so authoritative, you can interpret one passage from another passage. This stands in contradiction to what's called the two-book theory that says... You know, the Bible might say this, but we're going to also try to interpret the nature, nature totally apart from the Bible. And if our interpretation of nature apart from the Bible contradicts what the Bible says, then I don't know. We'll, we'll hold them in tension and we might go with our interpretive tension, interpretation of nature and let that trump the Bible. That's not the first place you go. It's not the first place the reformers went. They always went to the Bible itself first. So we have Second Peter 2, 5. And it says, Peter says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so Peter, Peter we're not going to get into the full context, but Peter's using this historical Old Testament history and brings, he talks about Noah, he talks about eight people, talks about the whole world being flooded, and that only Noah... Uh, one of the eight people is saved. So does this passage seem to support our conclusion that the flood was global? Answer, yes. So using the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of Scripture, we would say our interpretation of the Old Testament text is accurate. Some Christians say that the Genesis flood was a local flood, but universal in that it killed everyone alive on the earth except those on the ark. Okay, so here's how this argument goes. Yes, we agree that the flood was universal in its impact. It didn't cover the whole world. It just killed every human being that was alive at the time. Okay, so in order for this theory to work, you have to say, based on the Bible's chronology, that after 1,650 years, that every human being had contained themselves within the Mesopotamian area, the Mesopotamian Valley. Or which, whichever, if there's different theories on which valley we're talking about got flooded. But basically after 1,650 years, everybody's still living in this one little area. In spite of what the Bible tells us, you know, uh, about the spread of humanity in the genealogies and so on. So according to the historical data in Genesis, how many years after the creation of the flood occurred? We're talking about 1,600 and something. Given that much time and the long lives of the pre-flood people, does it make sense that nobody had moved out of the Mesopotamian Valley? Does that make sense? Everybody just stayed in that area with all these long ages. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people, and they all stayed in the Mesopotamian Valley. Does Luke 17, 26 to 30 support or deny our conclusion? Let's look there. <clears throat> Let's look at what Jesus says in Luke 17. Again, this is the analogy of the scripture. Let's say theoretically, boy, this is a really tough passage to interpret in Genesis, which it's not. But let's just say it was. Is there any other place in the Bible that helps us understand this passage? Luke 17, starting at verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. Uh, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed who? Them all. Likewise, it will be also in the day of Lot. Likewise, as it was uh, in the day of Lot, they ate, they drank and bought, <clears throat> they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now there the all is limited to Sodom and Gomorrah. But still, we're talking about everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah died, except for Lot and his wife. Even so, it will be in the day of the Son of Man when he is revealed. And so Jesus is comparing what happened around the time of Noah and the flood is 
A few people got saved. Everybody else is destroyed. So Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming. A few people are saved. Everybody else is destroyed. And so if we're going to deny the historical nature of the judgment at the flood, then we are setting Christ's words at odds with what we're basically saying that Christ didn't know what he was talking about. Or here's one other way that people deal with this is they say that Christ was merely accommodating himself to a commonly held belief of the time. People believed in the flood. People believed in the, that the flood was universal. And it would have been too complicated for Jesus to try to correct their mistaken notions. And so he accommodates himself to the mistaken notions of the time in order to teach a moral lesson. Well, that raises huge ethical questions. Can we just accommodate ourselves today to the mistaken notions of our culture in order to try to teach a lesson, just like Jesus did? Or did Jesus have to, is, is that the only place he could have gone is to Noah and the flood and try to accommodate himself to a mistaken notion? You see, people are just now bending over backwards to deny what the text seems to be clearly saying. And it runs into all kinds of other problems. Let's look at Genesis 9. <clears throat> we'll look at the... This is, this is the other, uh, another real problem with the local flood view is the, the promise that's made here. Let's start in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast uh, uh, of the earth with you, all that go on the ark, every beast of the earth. So God is making a covenant with whom? Noah and his family and those animals that are where? On the ark. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Whatever earth means here, it must mean the same thing in the previous context. Whatever earth means here, it must mean the same thing. Thus I established my covenant with you. Never again. I'm sorry, look at uh, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. A living creature is every living creature that's with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow on the cloud. It shall be a sign between me and the earth. Um, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, every living creature of all flesh. <clears throat> the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the, in the cloud, and I will look on it. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. See how he's just kind of repeating himself over and over again. Verse 18, now the sons of Noah, who went out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And from these sons of Noah, from these, the whole earth was populated. Verse 19. So everybody um, that is on the earth today, according to verse 19, came from where? Noah and his sons. Um, okay, so let's ask a few questions here. Who was God speaking to in verse 8? Okay, so Noah and his sons. Excellent. Uh, who established the covenant? Yeah, so God's establishing this covenant. This, this is what we call a um, unilateral covenant. There's In the Bible, there's unilateral and bilateral. Bilateral is there's two parties. Each party saying, here's one party says, I'm going to do this. And the other party says, I'm going to do that. In this one, this is God saying, I'm going to do this. It's totally upon me. So unilateral. Who was the uh, covenant with? We've got Noah, his sons, all their descendants, and every beast that was on the ark. So it's not just with Noah, it's also with the animals. Um, what was the promise of the covenant? A flood would never again destroy the earth and the living things on it as it had just happened. Um, what were the conditions of the covenant? Um, none. This is a unilateral covenant. God made the covenant with no demands despite the sinful condition of man's heart. In fact, he reiterates the sinful condition of man's heart. 
The sign of the covenant is a rainbow. What was the purpose of the rainbow? Basically, <clears throat> that God would remember. That doesn't mean he forgot, but it's a covenant language that he calls to mind and, um, and that it is still in effect. And how long ago was this promise given? If, uh, if the flood ended in the year around you know, 2350, the promise was made um, about 4,400 years ago. Uh, if we're looking at the biblical chronology. Um, okay. Let's, let's look at a couple things here. What attribute of God do we see in the keeping of this promise for over 4,000 years? Yeah, God's faithful. He says, I'm never going to do this again. He's never done it again. He's a faithful God. Um, has there been another flood that covered the entire globe since then? No, there, there definitely hasn't. Have there been other floods that have devastated vast areas? Yes. And if you guys were here when Milton was preaching through this, he gave examples I think three different floods that were just absolutely devastating um, in the in impact. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people that died. And you guys can just think in our own history of various floods. So many Christians who believe the flood was only a local event rely on the claims of geologists who say that the rock layers we see today contain no evidence of a global flood. So they would look at the rock layers and, and say there's no evidence for a global flood. And so some Christians, because um, geologists say there's no evidence, they say, well, we have to reinterpret the Bible. This is where we approach, and I'm hoping that you guys will buy into this, is that we basically approach life in a presuppositional way. Is based upon our belief in God, based upon our belief that he has inspired his word, um, and that he is trustworthy, and he's the only one that really knows these things with certainty, is that we start with the Bible, and if we can be confident we've interpreted the Bible clearly, then we can be more certain about things in the Bible than any other fact in our world. I can be more certain that there was a flood, a worldwide flood, than that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Because God, who is infinite, has told me that. I can say it's highly probable that George Washington was the first president of the United States based upon all the data that's out there. But what if there was just some huge conspiracy to make us all think that George Washington was the first president of the United States and all other documents were destroyed other than the ones that, that try to purport that he's the first president of the United States? Theoretically, we could be all duped. But I, I think it's highly likely that George Washington, I believe that he was the first president of the United States. I don't know if he chopped down a cherry tree or not. I'm not sure. Um, but I know, but I know if I understand what the Bible says and who God is and the authority of scripture, <clears throat> then I know that more cert with more certainty. I want, you, I want to encourage you guys to take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. They all say basically the same thing. In the doctrine of scripture, in the very first section, Roman numeral one, down around, I think, five and six, um, one of, the first point says that the Bible is authoritatively the word of God and we affirm it to be so because it comes from God himself who is truth. And so basically what that's arguing is we believe in the Bible because it's from God. It's authoritative because it comes from God. Then the second point says, while there are external evidences that demonstrate the veracity of scripture, its beauty, its unity, its consistency, its historical accuracy, so on and so forth. Um, and we should expect that. We should expect that when we look out into the, into the world that we do see that the Bible does verify our experience. It says, nevertheless, we do not depend upon these arguments, but we become fully convinced as the Holy Spirit is imparting to us the truth of the word as we read it. That's what we call pneumatological certainty. The Holy Spirit convinces us with absolute certainty that the word of God is true. And it's, it's, as Jonathan Edwards says, it's uh, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is not the Mormon doctrine of the burning in the bosom, where you look at your Book of Mormon over there and you go into a closet and you say, is this the word? Is this the word? Oh, I feel a burning. It is the word. 
No, as we're reading the Bible, as we're hearing it preached, the Holy Spirit uh, enters into the hearts of his people and says, this is true. And that is how we come to pneumatological certainty. That's the only way that we can be 100% about any of these things that involve spiritual truths or anything in the past. But nevertheless, if it is true, if we have, if, if what we're believing is not just fairy tales, it is indeed true, as we then begin to look out into the world through the right glasses, we see that it comports with reality. And that as we, as, as we look at the evidence, that it is comporting. Not that we're depending upon the evidence, but that it comports with what our belief says. Very different from what the Book of Mormon does. The Book of Mormon has two key peoples that allegedly lived in North America. And there hasn't been one shred of evidence that these two peoples ever existed anywhere. And yet they continue to feel the burning in the bosom totally apart from what the Book of Mormon says. Anyway, take a look at the 1689 in Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, These folks, instead, they accept that the earth's layers represent gradual process acting over billions of years and that the flood, if it was a real event, was confined to some local area. Some have suggested the Mesopotamian or the Black Sea. Um, It may have wiped out all of the people and animals in a given area, but it was not local. Perhaps the passage in Genesis is simply an exaggeration, hyperbole of smaller events, a smaller event that was altered to provide religious, moral, story about obeying God, but it is not an accurate account of history. This is what we've talked about in the past, Geshikta versus history. Is what no, the story of Noah and the flood is just Geshikta. It's just a moral story. We're not meant to be taking it historically. Um, and so we shouldn't get all upset when people are saying this is not historical. I do get upset. I'm sorry. Because the Bible purports it to be history. Uh, The flood, if the flood were simply a local event, would the ark have been necessary? These are questions that we need to ask. If it was just in the Mesopotamian area, why didn't Noah just throw on a backpack with his family and say, hey, let's go north? And they could have been out of that area within just a few days and been rescued instead of having to building this ark for 120 years. What's the sense in that? Yeah, it just teaches them obedience. I'm going to build this ark for 120 years that I don't really need. See, this is the nonsense that people get themselves involved with when they just don't take the Bible as a straight, straightforward way. <clears throat> and then when you begin to look, look at the Bible out at the world, is there evidence of a worldwide flood, worldwide flood? Yes, there is. If we're looking at the world, interpreting the data through the right glasses. If the flood was local... Uh, Has God kept his promise to never send another flood like the one that just occurred? Absolutely not. There's been floods just as big as this alleged local flood in the history of the world. And so therefore, God has not kept his promise. He has not been faithful. Could the highest hills have been covered by water by 20 feet in a local area? Absolutely not. This is a picture put out by Answers in Genesis to demonstrate the tomfoolery of this. If it's local, there's no way you have waters just kind of, you know, floating there. Um, you know, we got a rainbow, going to keep the promise and so on and so forth. No, let's just, I don't know why people want to do this. Let's, let's just cut to the chase. Don't try to say there's a local flood. Just say it's a myth. Just say you don't believe in Genesis 6 to 9. It's all mythical or it's just a, a moral story. Why go into all of the works to try to say it's a local flood and just put yourself at contradiction with all the rest of the of the narrative. It just doesn't work. <clears throat> if we simply allow the word of God to speak to us in the plain sense it is given, we cannot accept that the flood was anything but global. And then and then just why do cultures around the world have a legend have legends of global floods? Like you guys have a handout there that you can take a look at. We won't take time to survey it in this class. <clears throat> Um, but there's just there's legends of local floods all over the place. Now, honestly, it could be if we set the Bible aside and we don't take our presuppositional ap- apologetics approach, it could be that the Bible borrowed its story from the Babylon uh, from the Babylonians, right? Could be that the Babylonians made up a flood story and then uh, Moses just got his flood story from the Babylonians, and so <clears throat> you see that's the nature of evidence. 
if we set the Bible aside and we try to just go with, quote unquote, evidence to prove to our unbelieving friend that the Bible's true. There's arguments against any argument I can give you. There's arguments against it. Hey, well, no in the flood. Well, they got it from the Babylonians. You know, there's fossils up at the top of Mount Everest. Well, millions and millions of years ago, that used to be at the base of a valley. Every piece of evidence I can give you through their worldview, they can reinterpret it. And so it all comes down to worldview. What do people want to believe? Do we want to believe that God, a God who created the whole world, gave us a Bible, gave us his word in order to give us instructions, and that his word is faithful, and that he's calling us to worship him and love him and follow him? Or do we want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and start with man? It's always come down to those two options. So summary, reasons for a global flood. So this is... This is our basic uh, kind of review. Is the language used in Genesis 7, um, 17:24 particularly describes the flood as global. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. All flesh died that moved on the earth. The waters prevailed on the earth. I don't know how hard that is. I mean, I know, he- I know Hebrew. Pastor Milton knows Hebrew. You don't have to know the Hebrew to know that these are just very straightforward words. Um, confirmation of scripture with scripture. This is the analogy of the faith. Jesus Christ and others in the New Testament um, refer to a global flood. The depth and the duration of the flood. We're talking about 15 cubits, 371 total days. A local flood, let me tell you, no local flood is going to hang around for 371 days. So it's not going to happen. It's going to dry out. The only reason you're going to have 371 days of water is if it covered the entire earth. Um, the rainbow covenant. If God really made this covenant with humankind um, and it was only local, then he has been unfaithful to that covenant. We have uh, passages like Psalm 104. Thou didst cover it with uh, the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Clear reference to the flood. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank to the place which thou didst establish him. Now, this isn't a, poet, uh, a poetic sense of piece of scripture, but it's very interesting in verse 8 how it speaks of the, the mountains rising and the valley sinking. Um, some theologians believe that this is one of the references, one reference to what happened to the geology of the earth after the flood, is you have mountains rising. Now, um, Nicholas Steno, who is known as the father of, of stratigraphy, a branch of geology which studies rock layers and layering. So this is the guy who basically began the whole rock layering study. He developed his ideas with a firm belief in the Bible as the authoritative word of God. With this understanding, he reasoned that the worldwide flood of Noah's day would have had tremendous impact on the land surface. In fact, if the flood described in Genesis 6 actually occurred, the science of stratigraphy would demand that the formation of stratified rock layers all over the earth Uh, would be filled with fossil remains of the plants and animals that lived in the antediluvian world. So this is very interesting. Nicholas Stino, he looks at the Bible and he says, if this flood really occurred, here's what we should find. But imagine Stino goes out and he begins to research all over the world and he doesn't see this layer of rocks that he was expecting to see. He doesn't see fossilized plants and animals. Would that mean that we reject the Bible's story of the flood i would suggest no it wouldn't that there may be a there may be some other explanation but the fact is is the bible does say that there was a worldwide flood this guy says here's what i would expect to see if there was a worldwide flood he goes out and he finds it and then his predecessors eventually reject the flood that was the kickstart of the whole study of rock layers Ken Ham says this, Cynthia was referring to this earlier. If Noah's flood were true, you would expect to find millions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And what do we actually see in the fossil record? Million of dead thing, millions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. In fact, we'll, <clears throat> I think next week we'll give some more data from a scientific perspective on why the gradualism of modern geology just doesn't work. There's several different points of philosophy that people assume before they even start to look at the evidence. One of them is gradualism. 
that things have to have occurred slowly over time. The processes as we see today have always happened that way. There isn't any catastrophes in our, in our history. And so we, they deny catastropheism. And so they assume that everything that we see must have happened over millions and millions of years. So you look at the Grand Canyon. We assume that there was no great catastrophe like the flood. So how did that Great Canyon get there? It got there through very, very slow erosion over millions and millions and millions of years. Do they know that from observation? No, they don't. It's assumed before they start looking at the data. <clears throat> uh, let's look at one final thing that's a very interesting phenomena, and that is the way that people look at Mars today. Scientists look at Mars. Um, this is from an article, um, 2013. Jeffrey Kluger, the red planet may be home to a vast ocean of water, and it's straining to break free. Um, the fact is, is there is no liquid H2O uh, that, that we know of on Mars. Uh, there, there is some H2O that we think is in the caps. Um, <clears throat> James Perloff has this to say about what people are saying about Mars. He says, Mars is dry. It has no known water, save tiny traces of water vapor in the atmosphere, and it has polar caps of undetermined composition. Nevertheless, scientists say it once had a great flood. More than 70% of the Earth, on the other hand, is covered with water. But a great flood here? Nah, impossible. After all, that would agree with the Bible. You look at the Earth from space and look at Mars from space and compare the two. And yet scientists are convinced that Mars was, was covered with a great flood because of the various grooves and stuff that you see on the land of Mars. And yet they deny that there was a great flood on Earth. Why? Why? Is it because of evidence? No, it's presuppositionalism. They've already decided before the evidence is even looked at that a flood could not have occurred on the Earth. Why? Because they know the Bible says there was a flood. And so they decide that it can't have happened because it was in the Bible. 70% of the Earth's service, if, if the creation scientists are correct, and you have mountains lowered and valleys raised, not to mention all of the water that we have subterranean. Pastor Milton, I think, spoke about this in one of his sermons, is all of the H2O that is vapor-locked in, in volcanic rock underneath our sur at the surface of our Earth. <clears throat> there's enough water. There's, I, I forget, it. I'll have to double-check the facts with him, but there's a crazy amount of water that's underneath our surface um, that would have been part of uh, the worldwide flood coverage. So application, as you interact with people, um, what is the most likely objection to the flood account from Genesis? What have you guys heard? What's the most, the biggest objection to worldwide flood? I know what my number one objection that I hear is, where'd all the water go? If there's a worldwide flood, where'd all that water go? They say, oh, that's nonsense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem to dawn on people that 70% of our surface is covered by water. Um and we don't know what the structure of the earth was before the flood. How shallow were the valleys? How um, lowered were the mountains? And then there's all the subterranean H2O that we have that's both liquid and non-liquid form. And so uh, there's plenty of water to cover the earth. <coughs> um, but, you know, people, yeah. It's been a long time. Is that on their uh, website? Oh, cool. I'll have to check that out. Maybe I can show that next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, the um, yeah, just the the breaking forth from underneath. That's part. You know, one of the things that people don't really think about. Say it again. Yeah, yeah. Pro fracking, God. Yeah. Um, what elements of the text of Genesis 6 to 9 could you use to point someone to the global nature? We've, sorry, you know, the alls, the everies, things like that. 
Um, do various flood legends from around the world prove that the biblical flood really happened? No, it doesn't prove it, but it cr it's corroborating evidence, right? Be very, very careful how you use evidence. Uh, kind of like Matthew McLean was saying the other day. It's, it's, I really love what he said that, you know, science is an approximation of truth. And just because something has been purported today that seems to corroborate the Bible, if that gets ripped away from you in five years, are you going to be like, oh, no, I don't know if the Bible's true? No. You know, we, um, and so, yeah, this corroborates, but we don't, we wouldn't say it proves it. Um, when, when talking with fellow Christians who believe or been taught that the flood was only local, how would you challenge their understanding? I love what our, our curriculum says. Uh, this should be done in a prayerful, loving attitude, asking them to examine the text carefully. Some may not have uh, been taught um, a local interpretation without studying the passage. You know, so we don't have to like hammer people over the head and say, you're a heretic and um, how dare you. I think the vast majority of people um, have just not really studied the text itself. So read through the text with them. Um, there are a number of people that are more in the science realm who have studied, um, but they haven't really studied the text. Uh, I've talked, I can't tell you how many people I know that are scientifically minded who really haven't studied Genesis six to nine. And if, and, and just sitting down and reading through with them six to nine um, could be very, very helpful. Uh, let's see. All right, I think I think that's what we're we're going to end right there. <clears throat> let me uh, bef before we pray, let me just say one final thing. Um, and that is this that I, I guess one of the questions I just find myself asking is why is it that people who love God, who are Christians, who say they love the Bible, will deny things like the flood. And, you know, as I've talked to different people, I, I think there's a pretty simple answer. And I think the answer is, is there certain beliefs um, that will put you in the category of a fool in our culture? If you believe certain things, people, without even being able to dialogue about the evidence, they will immediately call you a fool. Um, today, if you say that marriage should only be between a man and a woman and that homosexuality is an immoral lifestyle, you will automatically be a fool to many people. Um, and if you say that you believe that God created the world in six days and our earth is not as old as people say it is, and there was a worldwide flood, you're going to be called a fool. <clears throat> and so there's a tremendous amount of temptation to, to bend what seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture, even though that teaching from Scripture can be corroborated in the natural world, in general revelation, people, I think, are very tempted to avoid the, the place of being a fool. Um, but I think we need to recognize that the Bible has a category for us where we are called fools. We are called fools. That to believe in the gospel is a foolish thing. And that Christians historically have always been considered fools. doesn't mean that we go out and try to be dumb. But if you just believe what this, the straightforward reading of scripture is, if you believe the gospel, guess what? You're going to be considered a fool. And so we need to, to arm ourselves with that fact. Um, there are just amazing people all around the world who just for belief in Jesus Christ and him crucified have lost much. <clears throat> and, and that's just, I think, part of the nature of being a Christian. Um, so don't be afraid to be labeled um, a fool. And then lastly, if, 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 we're, if we're afraid of being labeled a fool for the flood, what is, um, so you're going to deny the flood, but now you're going to hold to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? That somehow this guy was bodily raised from the dead? That's scientifically impossible. We know that. Um, that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just as a man, but as God in the flesh. And that he propitiated the wrath of God. How can you demonstrate that scientifically? How can you demonstrate that Jesus Christ actually ascended, defied gravity, and ascended up into heaven, and that he's going to come back? Can we demonstrate these things scientifically? We can't. 
And so once you start denying things like the flood, why do you hold to the resurrection then? Why do you hold to the atonement? Why do you hold to the return of Christ? It just, it doesn't seem to make sense. So I, I believe, it w- I want to encourage you all to embrace all of Scripture because it is God's word and is authoritative. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask, God, that we would <clears throat> be those that would humbly hold to your, your word. Um, we're just children, really. There's so many things in your universe that we have no idea about. None of us were there um, during the time of the flood. And yet you come as a loving father and you bend down on a, on a, a knee and you, and you tell us about our history. You tell us about the flood and how it happened and how it's affected us in your faithfulness um, to the end and help us just as children to believe what your word says and based upon that belief to to go out and then enjoy the world that you've created and to interpret our life uh, in the light of your word. I pray, Father, we'd not be ashamed to be associated with what your word clearly teaches. And um, we just thank you for this time that we've been able to be together and help us to walk in humility with the knowledge that you've granted us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.